Welcome to episode 24 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. When my dear sainted grandmother was in her 80s, shrunken with age, she met a rat at the top of the stairs one day. They stared at each other. Although her bones were no stronger than breadsticks, quick as a shot, she grabbed a housecoat hanging from behind the bathroom door and tossed it over the rat. Then she picked up a broom and beat it to death. It was an instant response, and done in about the time it took to take out a cigarette and light it. I was reminded of that watching Mazurka, because Pola Negri did the same thing to a man who was as good as a rat. Only Pola's character was at the bottom of a staircase, and the man was at the top. Luckily, though, she had a pistol rather than a broom to put out his lights. Pola wasn't as quick as my grandmother. She had fainted initially, before she summoned the resolve to shoot him. But who could blame her? What do you do when you're singing a cabaret song, and the next thing you know, you see the man who ruins your life? When Pola Negri left Hollywood, she was determined to prove the moguls at Paramount Studios wrong. They had declared Pola one of the stars incapable of making the transition to sound in the new talking pictures. Perhaps the greatest artistic fuel sparks from the desire to triumph where you were underestimated. One of the most persistent Hollywood fables with staying power is that so many of the silent stars floundered because of their voices. More often, the studio executives used the voice issue to roust out actors who had big fat contracts. It was a convenient excuse to offload expensive stars who made big demands and then replace them with cheaper and new talent. Having a bad voice simply wasn't the case for many stars, and especially not for Pola Negri. She had a fabulous, euphonious voice. In her first talkie, A Woman Commands, from 1932, the notices were lackluster, but it had nothing to do with how she sounded. Instead, in her memoir, she points to the fact that she had a weak script and that she felt no connection to Basil Rathbone, who was not up to the task of romantic leading man. I might add that the film now holds a much better critical assessment than when it premiered. When film roles had dried up, Pola conducted a long vaudeville tour of the U.S. with a dramatic act that she had performed to acclaim in London. Exhausted by the end of it, her doctor ordered a long rest. She had accepted an invitation from Marion Davies to take a rest in San Simeon, the luxury palace she occupied with longtime lover William Randolph Hearst. Marion told her she could socialize with their guests as little or as much as she liked. While she was staying there, she met Carl Lemley, head of Universal Pictures. Lemley offered Pola the chance to star in a joint production with his studio and some partners in Berlin. She didn't want to go, except he told her not to decide until she read the script, which he promised she would love, and she did. He signed her for $25,000 plus expenses for five weeks, a mere fraction of the salary she had commanded in the silence, but she had something to prove, and so she accepted. Pola needed a hit. With a juicy part about a woman on trial for killing a man, with the celebrated Vili Force directing and top-notch production values, Pola was sure that it would launch her Hollywood comeback. She had expensive tastes to finance, after all. 
In her memoir, she recalled how the producers were perhaps more desperate for a hit than she was. They lacked the braggadocio that she knew as the trademark of most producers. Because they were non-Aryans, as Arnold Pressburger and Gregor Rabinovich put it, German law required them to apply for a special permit to work on the film. They did not expect to gain permission to work again in Germany. Their hope was that with a hit on their hands, they could leave and secure work elsewhere in Europe or in Hollywood. When Pola finally makes her entrance in the film, 20 minutes into the runtime, it's a striking number worth waiting for. She swaggers out onto a cabaret stage. Behind her, painted on the wall of the stage backdrop, is a gigantic peacock, so that it looks like the peacock's tail or train and its coverts spring out from her behind. It's a dazzling effect. She starts to sing a torch song about intoxicating love and its loss. With hands fastened on her hips, Pola looks as though she's been through the wars. She wears a black choker, a black spangled gown with puffy sleeves, and tight blonde curls that tell you she, she has seen more than a few men walk off into the sunset. She looks a little woozy. Although she has a lovely voice, which flutters with great range from low to high notes, after a few stanzas, she walks off stage into the crowd and stops singing the lines. She seems weary, too tired to carry a tune. So it relaxes into regular speech, and she talks through the lines with wistfulness. Hitting the marks on the floor in an all-too-familiar routine, her heart just isn't in it. The singer's resignation has more heft than a diamond cuff. Did this inspire or inform Marlena Dietrich's cabaret act in years to come? I wouldn't be surprised. Pola finishes her song in a man's lap. She helps herself to a big swig of cognac from a snifter at the table. She takes more relish in the stiff drink than the man. Perhaps the French liqueur offers more solace than a man's arm. Suddenly, the spotlight shifts from Pola to an older man in a private box off to the side who's engaged in kissing a girl half his age. Caught out, he looks about annoyed when he locks eyes with the cabaret singer. Pola stares at him. Dumbstruck, she faints, and not in a dainty way either. She drops forward on her face like a pile of wet laundry. The man, played by Albrecht Schoenhall, is a composer. He pushes his young girl date, Lisa, played by Ingborg Thiek, to the exit. Lisa was a reluctant date for the famous composer. But bowled over by his fame and avid attention, she was looking for a thrill. She clearly lacks the experience to see him for what he is, a wolf in opera clothes. Had she been schooled in matters of the heart, she would have realized that he was no good once the singer had passed out cold. When he drags Lisa up the stairs with the door in sight, Pola Negri bellows his name with the clanging power of a church bell and stops him in his tracks. Then she fires twice and drops the revolver. She does not try to flee the scene. In a courtroom, on the stand, Vera looks like a somnambulist. With loose hair, she looks less styled and harsh than she did in her cabaret act. A simple black dress underlines a blank expression. Lisa provides testimony of what happened, that the composer Mihailov never explained his relationship with the singer before he, he died. 
Pola keeps her head bowed, indifferent to the proceedings. When the judge requests an explanation, she refuses. Without emotion or protest, she tells the judge to just get it over with. She doesn't deny it. Sentence her and move on. A clerk enters the courtroom to submit evidence into proceedings. Vera's case from the railway station may tell them of her relationship to the man she shot. Suddenly animated, Pola tells the court that they must not open the case under any circumstances, not until they first hear her confession. She demands that the court be closed to the public while she tells her story. At first, the judge and the state's attorney convey their outrage. Who is she to command terms? After a minute, they acquiesce. They cannot disguise their intrigue. Before them stands a woman who had refused to talk, even though she faced 15 years in prison. And now she commands them as though it were her birthright. How could they refuse her terms? They want to know what happened between the singer and the composer, just as much as the viewer. A flashback opens on 1912, during a big finale of a stage production, with Mihailov, the composer, leading the orchestra, and Polonegri's Vera singing a mazurka. She croons the lyrics, I feel within me, I feel within you the same wild blood. Dressed in a fetching peasant costume, with black velvet hair adorned with a floral crown, Pola is joy and pleasure personified. She looks so much younger with jet black hair. I know that the beauty wisdom says that when women veer towards 40, they should go towards blonde. Experts claim it's more flattering and softer to a woman's appearance. Yet here in Mazurka, blonde Pola of the present day looks faded and far older with blonde hair. The jet black hair, though, makes her milky skin tone shine. She appears refreshed and tosses away 20 years as they were only a worn corsage at the end of an evening. Switch back to the stage after the curtain falls. Vera tells a member of the cast that this is her last show, that she's quitting for the man she loves. He has sent the largest bouquet in the room. Mihailov enters and paws the lead singer. He ignores Wanda, the supporting cast member, who's obviously in love with him. After the girl leaves, Vera chides him for his rude behavior and notes that all women bore him after four weeks. She barely looks at him, and when her love, Boris Kirov, a captain in the army, arrives, it's as though Mihailov was invisible. They speak of their impending nuptials. He confesses that he's glad her stage career is ending because he was always jealous of her love scenes. Boris has so many medals, fancy braiding, and military insignias on him that he looks like a walking flag and a national anthem all at once. It's a wonder he could take an interest in anyone else with so much self-regard plastered on him like a billboard advertisement. Fast forward two years, Vera hovers over a toddler. A doctor examines the child. Worried, Vera notes the feverish eyes the baby had all day. Washing up his hands, the doctor tells her she's too anxious. She's obsessed about the child who is, after all, perfectly healthy. He recommends that she go out and meet people, that she have a life outside the house while Boris is away fighting at the front line. Vera looks down at an invitation to a charity ball for wounded veterans. The scene cuts to the ball, Vera's smooth hair curled in ringlets. She's in an oyster-colored silk gown. She arrives in time for a mazurka. Her old friends from the theater embrace her. 
Mihailov enters and tells her he sent the invitation. His new leading lady, Xenia, throws Vera the stink eye jealous, pouts, and tries to recapture the composer's attention. At the after-party, held in the composer's elegant townhouse, Vera sings a mazurka. Everyone's joyful. They stop to toast her. She wavers at this point, telling the crowd she's had enough to drink. Vera is fading fast. The composer sidles over and presses more drink on her. He insists. Vera asks to go. She wants to be taken home. The camera splits in two to approximate her blurred double vision. They bid the company farewell as the composer tells them that he's off to take Vera home. In the foyer, he grabs his cloak and top hat. Leaning against the doorframe with her eyes closed, Vera murmurs something about them getting a car. He leads her to the door. Pola Negri's face empties of consciousness. Blank as a baby, she's virtually passed out. Mihailov opens the door and then very quietly shuts it and leads her down the hallway to his bedroom. While they walk, the camera splinters into extreme close-ups of the walls and the furnishings, which spin around. As she's led to his bedroom, the camera skews into a narrow frame to heighten the claustrophobia of Vera's moment. She's trapped in there on his bed. The focus on the chandelier underscores an out-of-body experience. How the camera focus on details outside of the scene of impending horror is where a victim clings for some escape. In the last shot of this scene, Mihailov bends over her, drawing ever closer. She sinks into his bed as if in a grave. The next morning, she wakes in his bed, immediately aware of the horror. He enters in a dressing gown, looking like he has a mouth full of feathers. Impossible, she laments. It was the only thing possible, he confirms her worst fears. The lines from the mazurka echo for me in this moment. What men feel and what women feel isn't the same. And she has a terrible price to pay for his so-called wild blood. After she flees the scene and arrives safe in her home, a voiceover, sotto voce, a tiny whisper, invites the viewer into the after-effect of the sexual assault. She will torture herself about what she should do with her husband. Her small voice tells viewers that Vera's sexual assault continues to echo throughout her life. Even after she scrubs her face and runs a scalding bath, she feels his terrible imprint. Dazed, fearful, bent over her child, Boris enters, fresh from the battleground. Sobbing, she says she has so much to tell him, and then stops herself when she realizes that he lost an arm during the war. Cut to a scene weeks later, over lunch, Pola Negri's face is a mask, empty, and frozen still in shock. She waves off Boris's voice of concern that she's been so nervous and changed since his return. He claims, but I know you so well. Clearly, he has no idea. I can't stop thinking about Pola Negri sitting at luncheon, that mask she wears. It's the placid exterior that wives cultivate to conceal a host of fear and anxiety. She's swallowed every sign of distress. Her eyes are the only giveaway. She has those feverish eyes that she worried about when she thought her baby was sick. I can hear the chorus and refrain that plays over and over in her head. 
If she had only stayed at home, thrown away the invitation, ignored the doctor's advice to socialize, skipped the after party, not had anything to drink. She's so trapped by regret and guilt that she can't escape into anger at the composer, and she can't connect with her husband. Vera sits immobile during a perfectly ordinary scene and is completely removed from it, but it would never occur to her to kick up a fuss or bother anyone with her inner turmoil. That's what women do. When she hears the post arrive, she runs to inspect the letters, pulling out one from Mihailov. It's full of snide exclamation marks, demanding that she see him today. Vera leaves at once. She tells the composer to stop, that she loves only her husband and she will never see him again. Outside his door, she meets her husband Boris, waiting in the hall. He believes the worst, that she has taken Mihailov as a lover. How could he think the zombie he's been living with has been carrying on a passionate affair? Fast forward to an attorney's office after the divorce is final. She asks about her baby. In cases where the wife has committed adultery, the children stay with the father. Mihailov fled the country, so she cannot be cleared of the charge. Present day, in the courtroom, Vera tells the room full of men that she had no choice but to resume her singing career. She had to eat. But her voice was changed, she said, so she could only play small cabarets. I won't spoil the plot for you. Jack Warner screwed over many women during his tenure as a studio mogul. But the fact that he could sabotage Pola Negri, who never even worked for him, is fairly impressive. Mazurka ran for six months in cinemas in Paris and London. The film has the notorious distinction of being one of Hitler's favorites. He ordered it screened privately in the small hours as a bomb for insomnia. Mazurka was arguably the biggest hit Pola had in the talkies, but American audiences would never see the film. Warners bought the rights and suppressed all copies of Pola's starring role so that he could make it a vehicle for Kay Francis. The production with Kay Francis called Confession was released in 1937. It's strange to watch because it copies the original shot for shot. The only thing that keeps this from being blatant plagiarism, I guess, is that Warner's bought the rights. But Confession is Villy Force Opus, scene by scene. You should watch it, though, because Kay is a great actor and unquestionably a star and a sassmouth dame, but the story is Pola's. You can watch Mazurka with English subtitles at usubtitles.com slash mazurka dash 1935 id dash 1400040. And you can watch the remake Confession starring Kate Francis on Daily Motion. I'll leave you now with an excerpt from Polonegri's book Memoirs of a Star. Exactly two days before we were actually to start shooting, I was dining in my hotel suite with Philly Forst when Rabinovich burst in upon us in a state that mingled extreme excitement with no little fear. He exclaimed, Pola Negri is banned from making a picture by order of Dr. Goebbels. Vili and I were flabbergasted. Why, I demanded, what is his reason? He claims you are not of pure Aryan stock. He paused for a moment and then said, Pola, hiring a Jewish secretary these days, that was not clever. I'll hire whomever I choose, I shouted indignantly. 
Well, they tried to hush me with warnings of listening devices. I don't care, I continued. Why that miserable little worm? He's as crippled in his mind as he is in his body. If I did have any Jewish blood, do you think I'd hide it? No, I'd be proud of it. I won't have that psychotic interfering with my career. I'm not German. I'm a Polish citizen. I picked up the phone and called the Polish ambassador, Joseph Lipski. I want you to tell Dr. Goebbels all you know about my family history. You can also tell him I'm leaving Germany. I won't stay in this country a moment longer than I have to. To my surprise, His Excellency also tried to quiet me. He begged me to be prudent in what I said and did, when he really should have been as furious as I was, if only because it was a question of national honor. I was, after all, a world-famous citizen of his country. I slowly hung up, realizing that Lipsky was very diplomatic. Vili Forst immediately declared himself, if Negri is banned, I will not direct the picture. Production had to be postponed for several days, while the whole country was stunned and spoke of nothing but the implications of the story. Ambassador Lipsky kept assuring me that he was doing everything possible to get the error corrected. As for myself, it no longer mattered what they thought or did. I had lost all interest in working under the Third Reich. I intended to leave Germany forever. With a little bribery, I was able to obtain an exit visa for my secretary. One morning, when I had just about completed my packing, Vili and Rabinovich rushed into my suite, gaily waving the daily papers in the air. On the front page, there was an announcement that the chancellery, signed by Adolf Hitler himself, Polonegri, is permitted to work in Germany. Investigators have checked on her Aryan status and revealed that she is a Polish Aryan. Although Goebbels continued to insist that my great-grandfather on my father's side had Jewish blood, he was overruled by his superiors. They had actually sent investigators into Poland and Slovakia to check on my ancestry. It doesn't change anything, I cried. I'm still not going to make a picture here. Vili and Rabinovich did their best to persuade me to change my mind. When they failed, the authorities stepped in, in the extent of involving Ambassador Lipsky in the situation. I was reminded that I had an ironclad contract. There were threats that I would not be able to cross the border unless I fulfilled it. I again appealed to Lipsky. He shrugged helplessly. There was nothing that could be done about it. I sighed and ordered my trunks unpacked. I told Paula that she was still on the job as my secretary. She replied that with the exit visa in her possession, she would always be able to get out and was in no immediate danger. She would just as soon remain for as long as I stayed in Germany. I will say this much for them. Under the administration of the Nazis, the studios were run with phenomenal efficiency. The production techniques were far in advance of anything I had encountered in Hollywood. However, this did not compensate for the enormous drawback of scenario sterility made mandatory by censorship and propaganda demands. We were fortunate that these things did not touch Mazurka. The story was a universal one that had nothing to do with specific current events in Germany, and so the government did not tamper with the script. As far as I was concerned, a woman commands was no more than a sound test. I was determined to show Hollywood that they had underestimated my value as a talking picture star by judging me on the dubious merits of one badly made film. There was no reason why I should not be vindicated. I had a very good cast, a great script, a brilliant director, 
an extraordinary technical staff, and I was personally putting everything I'd ever learned about acting into my performance. After the film was completed, I stayed in Berlin just long enough to see a preview before boarding a train for the Riviera to join my mother. During the showing, I had silently thanked God for this wonderful opportunity for renaissance of my career. Rabinovitz and Pressburger later told me that they had been informed that they would no longer be permitted to work in Germany, and they had decided to leave the country. Rabinovich said, We are not concerned about the future. With this picture is shown abroad, we'll have no trouble. They thanked me effusively for my efforts, and I promised that I would be available to, to make another picture with them whenever they decided to set up production. At the time, my plans also precluded staying in Germany. My great and fervent hope was to return to the, the United States as a result of the success of Mazurka. The bills were beginning to pile up all over again. Would I never be free of them? There were Casimir's funeral medical expenses, the running upkeep of the villa. The money was only going out everywhere and nowhere was it coming in. My only hope was Mazurka. If it was as well received as I thought it would be, there would be new offers and work and enough income for us to breathe again. When the picture was released, the press was unanimous in declaring my performance the greatest of my career and calling Mazurka the best talkie ever made in Germany. Word of its extraordinary quality rapidly spread through Europe and overseas to America. Unfortunately for me, the reports were also superlative that Warner Brothers bought up all American rights as a vehicle for their star, Kay Francis. This meant that the forced Negri version would never be shown in the United States and that there would be no new offers from Hollywood. I might add, parenthetically, that our version was a triumphant success all over the world while the Warner Brothers picture turned out to be a complete fiasco. Financial pressures kept mounting, and there was no sign of interest from California. As a result, when Ufa offered me a contract with brilliant terms, I had no alternative but to accept. I was to re receive 175,000 marks per picture, half of it payable in Swiss francs, into my bank account in Switzerland. I returned to Berlin that autumn to prepare for my first Ufa film in many years, Moscow, Shanghai. An extraordinary rumor had spread during my absence that I was under the special protection of the Fuhrer, and people began to pay me very special attentions. My simplest wish was granted with the speed of a royal command. My reaction to all of this kept swinging between the opposite poles of hilarity and horror. I had never met Hitler. The mystery of the genesis of these tales was not solved until we discovered that he was having mazurka screened during his bouts of chronic insomnia. Just as he ordered special performances of Wagner, so he would capriciously demand my picture in the early hours of the morning, often two or three times in the course of each week. Thanks for listening. A reminder, if you're enjoying the podcast, to go ahead and try and leave a review on iTunes. Join me next time for episode 25 when I talk about Gene Arthur and Mitchell Lyson's Easy Living from 1937. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific, and everything about it is terrific. 
Santa. 